Hello and welcome to Learn From A Stranger. Today's guest is Ian Brody and he is uh, from Australia. Australia is an island and it has therefore no neighboring countries. It is the driest country on the planet. 85% of the Australian population lives on or near the coast. And Australia really has it all. It has tropical zones, it has grasslands, it has temperate and semi-tropical areas in the southeast. And there's an island, uh, of Tasmanian island, which is very, very, very green. And of course, it has a great desert, which is also called the Outback. Australia has a population of 23 million people. And for eight decades, British convicts were sent there. But uh, to be truthful, it's also a lot of the population that is just coming from natural colonization, also back then. 85% of the population has a European heritage. The rest is different heritages and just about 3% are Aborigines. Austria has a wild, unique and curious nature. 80% of the plants, mammals, reptiles and frogs are unique to Australia and cannot be found anywhere else in the world. We all know kangaroos and dingoes, but it's also wallabies, wombats and of course koalas. Over the last centuries, lots of invasive species were brought onto the island, which spread and spread like wildfires, like rabbits, fox, goats, pigs and camels and it caused great issues and huge environmental issues. It was super expensive to control them. And of course there was this really big wildfires last year, we all remember, and uh, I really hope that uh, Ian also tells us a little bit about that. So Ian, welcome to my podcast today. Good morning and thank you. We have a huge time difference between me in Oslo and you in, in Australia. It's like 8 a.m. for me. How late is it in Australia? It's uh, 3.30 in the afternoon for me, so I've been working now for about seven hours. It's drawing near the end of the day. It's really a big time difference. You're literally on the other side of the planet. So while we have uh, winter here, you have a hot summer and it's 30, 40 degrees Celsius for you? Yeah, we have a summer. I'm in Western Australia in Perth and the summers here are long and hot. We get no rain to speak of from about... Uh, November through to April, and uh, the temperature averages about 30 degrees, but goes up to well over 40, 44, 45 on really hot days. Uh, at the moment, I'm looking at the calendar. The next five days is anything between 35 and 42 uh, every day. So we make the most of it. You've got to like the sun if you live here. That's going to gonna get really, really warm there, yeah. So, Ian, um, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? You uh, have a really rich uh, CV, so it would be nice to know just just the edges of it, maybe, if you, sure. <laughs> you want to share. <laughs> it's easy. I am in Australia at the moment, but I'm a New Zealander, born and bred, and grew up uh, initially in Auckland in the North Island, and then shifted down to Christchurch when I got married, worked for Air New Zealand uh, for 12 years. Uh, teaching people computers and, and training, and then shifted to Wanaka, which is down by Queenstown in the South Island, and spent uh, 18 years as the director of an aviation museum, uh, World War II aviation uh, particularly, and we had one of the largest flying collections of World War II aircraft in the Southern Hemisphere. So I was there for 18 years, uh, then for four years was... Uh, media and communications manager for Hobbit and Movie Set, uh, and then shifted to Australia some five years ago to be close to our children and our grandchildren. But uh, 
I'm an author and a photographer as well. I now work for myself and uh, written uh, 23 odd books. Uh, specialize in film and film tourism. Uh, wrote the Lord of the Rings location guidebook, uh, which was an official guidebook, and sold, I don't know, 600,000 odd copies. Uh, worked on The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, and created a book for that. Worked with The Hobbit and created a location guidebook for that. Uh, so I've sold about 1.6 million copies of books now worldwide. That's it in a nutshell, I guess. I'm a unit stills photographer, uh, part owner of a Norwegian company called Hidden. Love Norway. Um, have been there now 18 times, and we can talk about that a little bit as well. In 2005, was um, awarded a, uh, or became a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit, which is a um, an award given by the Queen. It's the equivalent, I guess, of a of an MBE for anybody in the UK uh, for services to writing and tourism. And that's a very brief nutshell visit. Well, it's still a lot. It's impressive. You have a very interesting CV. We actually met in person in Norway um, through Hidden, through the company Hidden you mentioned before. I worked for I worked for Hidden for a while. I remember that when we met, we went for uh, for a dinner. And we just started talking, and I really, I really got so fascinated by you and your stories. So I really, uh, I really had to have you as a guest when I started this podcast. <laughs> oh, thank you! It's an honor to be here, and it's good to talk to you again. It's fun. Yeah, it's been a while. What I remember very well is uh, your fascination for Norway. You come, you come really from New Zealand, and you traveled the entire world, and you've been everywhere. But you keep bouncing back to Norway for some reason. It really seems to be um, a connection there. Yeah, I love it. It's uh, funny. I was invited over uh, to Norway for the first time about seven years ago, I think, in February. Uh, never been to Norway. And I was the keynote speaker at a film tourism conference in Lillehammer. I still think back on that and think of the crazy clothing Diane, my wife and I wore for a winter in Norway and really not knowing. Uh, but fell in love with the place, fell in love with the people made a lot of connections and uh, I just couldn't stay away then. It was just a matter of getting back as, as often as I could. And now most of my work, in fact, comes from Norway. I'm there normally at least twice a year. And in a lot of ways, it's like New Zealand. You know, it's, um, it's an island uh, in one sense of the term, but it's got a big coastline. Uh, Norwegians are very Mr. Fix-It people, I guess you'd say. They... They can just do things, and they're very practical. They only say what they think. They're very honest. Uh, I've never had a contract in Norway. Any work that I do there is done with a handshake. I can trust them implicitly. And the landscape is is similar in some ways with high mountains and snow. Uh, I guess New Zealand has a bit more. We have tropical as well, but um, it's a great place. And, of course, with uh, COVID-19, I haven't been since uh, February of uh, 2020, and I'm itching to get back there. I've got cabin fever for Norway. Oh, yeah, I can bet. It's actually, um, you actually made amazing pictures in Norway. I saw um, a book you did in Hallingdal. It's just stunning. It's these mountains, and you made it look 
so amazing. I really have to say that. I hope I can I can share a picture you took from Norway uh, on a blog just for the listeners to see how talented you are with the landscaping pictures. It's really it's really amazing. Oh, thank you. It's uh, it's very easy to be a photographer in Norway when you're presented with that landscape. But uh, you're right, and, and I'm very proud of um, what I've been able to achieve over there. And to say that uh, some of my photos are uh, stored up in the vault in Svalbard, and I was the first New Zealander to have anything uh, put into the archives up there. And the fact that it was photos of Norway made me, uh, yeah, really happy, really proud. So you froze in picture in Svalbard in the in the uh, in the perma ice. Yeah, bank yeah, or... yeah. I've got seven photos that I took for. Uh, hidden around the Hemsedal mm -hmm. uh, area uh, as part of the mythology. And uh, they're now uh, forever up in, in the, the, the frozen beauty of uh, Svalbard forever. So that's really cool. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I was supposed to travel there, but COVID-19, I couldn't. I was supposed to freeze in some more, some more stories for Hidden. Uh, it's a beautiful place. It's... Um, when I stood there and it was somebody said to me, what's it like to be at the top of the world? You realize that there is only about 50 people in the world above us. Everybody else is below. And that really brought it home to me how um, far away we actually were. Yeah, Svalbard is really out there. It's like so north, as north as you get almost if you don't want to go to the North Pole. Yeah, I've got to go back to Svalbard. That was only two days. It wasn't long enough. And we got there just, uh, it was in February. The sun was setting. As we got there, we got about an hour of daylight uh, for me to take photos. It wasn't enough. It's just, um, it's another place that I just have to revisit. And in, in February in Svalbard, there's absolutely no sun, right? It's just permanent. Uh, the sun came up uh, for about two hours. But I think to be to be fair, I don't think uh, my listeners will enjoy our talk about Hidden just as much as you talking about the Lord of the Rings or Narnia, obviously. <laughs> Figured that you have been part in the actual movie as uh, as a statist. Yeah. You? You have a, like you went in costume and you actually have been on scene and... Actually, were to see in the film? I can see myself in the film. Uh, well, anybody can see me in the film, but I'm in the third film. It's a bit of a family affair, actually. Uh, in The Return of the King, when uh, uh, Pippin lights the, lights the first beacon at Minas Tirith to try and get the riders of Rohan to come through, uh, Gandalf is uh, busy, and you'll see a very long-haired um, person behind Gandalf uh, that's me, and then my son is an orc in the same uh, in the Return of the King, marching out of Minas Tirith, and my daughter's a hobbit hanging out washing at Hobbiton in the Hobbit film. So, three out of four of us made the movies. That's really cool. That was fun. So how how was it to how was the scene how was the the making of the movie how was the mood there. I came in during the pickups, um, and I guess it goes back to the writing of the book. I was first read Lord of the Rings when I was uh, about 14, and immediately the, the words of Tolkien uh, reached out to me as describing 
New Zealand. I always thought New Zealand uh, was Middle Earth. So I'd written a number of aviation books and in the late 90s, 2000, when I found that Peter Jackson was filming uh, The Lord of the Rings, making it in New Zealand, it um, occurred to me that, hey, wouldn't it be cool to write a book on obviously the many locations they're going to use? And I went to my publisher and they said, no, can't do that because it's all licensed and put me onto HarperCollins, wrote a letter to HarperCollins and thought, well, that's it, it's never going to happen. And about two months later, I got a, a letter back saying, we think it's a good idea. And um, although the licenses have all been uh, set out for the Lord of the Rings book, we're going to add your book in and call it Book 15A. So at that point, I made contact with production and they'd actually finished uh, the major shoot at that stage. Uh, and we're putting together uh, the Fellowship of the Ring. And in fact, I think it had just come out. The crew were amazing once I got in contact with them, made friends with the unit publicists, and we're still great friends. So Claire helped me so much, introduced me to Barry Osborne, the producer. And I was like, wow, this is the man that uh, produced James Bond, that's produced The Matrix. And Barry is an amazing person as well. So got all the locations, personally visited every single one with the family and uh, had a, I guess, a family geek fandom moment at each of these places and uh, wrote the book. And Did you take pictures of the locations while while the shoot was going on and after or how, how can I imagine that? Yeah, it was just afterwards. So all the locations I visited, uh, the sets were gone. So it was just us and the landscape. And uh, as I've always said, it doesn't matter because before the Lord of the Rings films were made, you created the film in your mind. You created the landscapes and um, just do the same again. So I know we visited each one and then um, completed the book. And I'll never forget, it was due to come out just prior to the release of The Two Towers. And um, I said to my uh, editor, how many copies do you think will sell? Because my aviation books had sold well. We'd sold four or 5,000 copies. And uh, that was really good for a little country like New Zealand. And she said to me, well, we've printed 18,000 copies, which, wow, was huge. And she said, I think they'll last at least a year, probably more. So the book came out on a Thursday and... I had a film crew with me do a little television piece just about the writing of the book that aired on the same day. Uh, the book came out on the Thursday, and by Monday they were reprinting. So we sold 18,000 copies in four days. It was crazy. just yeah. unbelievable. <laughs> That's crazy. It's so great. Yeah. yeah, and then it just became part of it. Tourism in New Zealand were delighted because I'd always been a fan of uh, film tourism and um, I just didn't expect it to be as big as what it was, what it turned out to be, I guess. I personally know quite a lot of people that travel to New Zealand, especially because of Lord of the Rings. Oh, uh, undoubtedly. It's, uh, since then, I've um, done other versions of the book, bigger books and extended versions. And as I said before, we've sold maybe 650,000 copies, but I've um, spoken a lot on film tourism and the effects 
that Lord of the Rings had on tourism in New Zealand um, worldwide, which of course took me to Lillehammer. Uh, it's taken me to Krakow in Poland. I've sp spoken on cruise ships and um, a number of different places around the world. But it puts about 125 million New Zealand dollars uh, per annum into the country just in film tourism alone. And that's probably erring on very much on the low side. And you've only got to look at Hobbit and Movie Set, which initially, of course, was left and there was just facades. Um, the local uh, farmers that owned the property had the idea that possibly they could open it up for tourism. Um, and they did. And it operated like that for a number of years, just as facades. And they got 25, 30,000 people per annum. And then it, the, the set was rebuilt for The Hobbit. And Peter Jackson became a partner in the Hobbiton business. All the sets were rebuilt permanently. And pre-COVID-19, uh, Hobbiton was getting over 500,000 people uh, visiting per annum. So it shows you oh, the power of, of yeah. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, and New Zealand. It's, it's crazy. It's also amazing. I saw I, I know the pictures from Hobbiton from from fans and people that posted on Facebook and like, and naturally see them actually quite often. So it, it really is something that people know and that people love and it looks beautiful. It's it's lovely. It's green. It's it's exactly as I imagined the Shire to be. And you're right. Um, I left Hobbiton after, it was when it had opened um, as a true, I guess, vision of what it was supposed to be. But at that stage, even one in three people uh, visiting Hongerton had never seen the films or read the books. I remember myself what impression I had when I read the book the first time myself is uh, you don't forget it. You don't forget when you read The Lord of the Rings the first time. No. It sticks with you, right? And I also, I actually was really skeptical to the movies when they came out. It was I just read the book a few years before the movies came out. So when I was a teenager, the, the first movie came out. I was actually skeptical to see the movie because I didn't want to ruin the movie I made in my, my head. I didn't yeah. want to ruin the the glory I had built up there. And of course, I, I don't actually remember anymore how I imagined the people and the, the scenery. Because the second I saw the movie, of course, it was all gone. And my my made-up uh, scenery was gone and now it's all New Zealand. <laughs> it is New Zealand. You're right. <laughs> and it's funny. Um, and um, I guess you'll share my Instagram uh, Monica with people but I've got photos uh, there that I've revisited of places in New Zealand that I imagined were Middle Earth that were not used in the film but those still stick in my mind as being part of Lord of the Rings but all the rest of the locations yep that's exactly as Peter Jackson envisaged it and I think he did a damn good job of, of turning New Zealand into Middle Earth yeah, I can. I agree. It's a, it's, a, it's a really amazing movie. Film history on its best. And I'm definitely going to tag you. So uh, everybody who's interested in seeing those pictures, I'm going to tag Ian's Instagram account on Learn From a Stranger's Instagram account. So you Great. will uh, easily find him uh, when you click on the episode. And I'm also going to hopefully get a few pictures to share on learnfromastranger.com. There's going to be a blog page about Ian, as just as I do for every of my guests. And you will find a few pictures there and all the links to Ian's homepage. It's uh, ianbrody.net. It is. 
and uh, it's a very informative homepage. There's lots of interesting stuff to find there. I just stalked you a bit there the last days, and <laughs> you will see lots of great pictures from both Norway and actually all around the world, really. And you made it lots of guidebooks, film guidebooks, and area guidebooks. Yeah, and I've also got a portfolio page, which is ianbrodyphoto.net, which is just my brain dump of images. So it's not really a dump, it's, but it's um, where all my um, photos live. So that's a good one to go and visit as well. I also saw that a lot of pictures, and I remember we talked about that too, is uh, are made with a drone. And I remember we talked about you having the drone, and I, I was actually surprised that you're pretty geeky about that. Yeah, I have been all my life. The first iPhone came out, I had one. Bought it at the Apple shop in San Francisco. Uh, but I'm a geek for everything like that. I just can't help myself, I'm afraid. <laughs> so I've had a number of different drones. I've got a Phantom uh, 4 Pro, which lives in Norway. Uh, I have a Norwegian uh, drone license. So when I go over there, I fly that one. I've got another one here. But I like all those sorts of gadgets. I think if you're born a geek, you will always be a geek. I think it's, it's not something you can... Uh unlearn <laughs> has no age limit no nothing i agree like the work that i'm doing at the moment which is i'm actually creating a uh, epub3 a uh, an, an ebook an enhanced ebook for unesco world heritage so all those sorts of things uh using InDesign and using those products um, it helps to be a geek to to use them so you make a unesco heritage ebook like of all of them or of a special area I'm making one at the moment uh, for UNESCO World Heritage in Norway and Rukan, Rukan Nytodden. So uh, that's, I've been working on that now with, um, I work with a Norwegian partner, David John Smith, Norway Communicates, who's an American that uh, lives in Oslo, has been living there for years, married to a Norwegian. So it's really quite bizarre. There's an American and a Kiwi Australian writing about stuff in Norway. It's quite funny, isn't it? Yeah, in, in a way it really is. I remember I met David uh, as well because you recommended him to me and we um, we immediately started bitching about Norway. <laughs> like, because it happens when you're foreigner in a different, living in a different country for a while, you just sometimes need to get it out of your system. Like Norway is fantastic, as you said, but sometimes you just need to, to bitch a bit about it. Of course you do. The habits and what's going on and, and then you start talking about the stuff you like again after a while. So I really, I really remember that. He's, he's a great yeah. person. Uh, and it's funny, a lot of people say Norwegians are very reticent and they don't speak much and um, they keep to themselves. Maybe I'm the same, but uh, I find Norwegians so friendly and um, I would say almost 90% of my friends are now on Facebook are Norwegian. So I don't think it's true what people say. I would say as a society, they might be like, I see that now in COVID, the people I know, the Norwegians I know, they don't really mind the social distancing. It's more like, do we really have to go back? Like, do I have to sit on a train again with everybody and then people might talk to me? So I, I think they do social distance themselves also during uh, during normal days, also outside of the pandemic. But when you first actually get the Norwegian to talk to you, they're super friendly and super nice and very smart society, I would say. A smart people. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And it's, I find it, it's my shame, my fault, that I'm hopeless with languages. And all these visits, I still can't speak any Norwegian. And 
I, I'm disappointed with myself that I can't, but I just can't. It just doesn't gel for me at all. Um, but I'm so lucky because Norwegians speak um, perfect English. Well, most do anyway. It's a pretty easy language to learn, especially when you already speak uh, English or German. I have to. I learned it in no time. I really picked really? it up so fast. It took me, I don't know, half a year. Like after a year and a half in Norway, I actually started working in office and had to answer phone calls, which still was challenging at the time. But uh, it's not a problem. I, I speak just fluent Norwegian. And really? So it's well. a pretty easy English mm, language to pick up. So I can definitely teach you a few a few Norwegian words. Yeah, <laughs> few. yeah. Well, as I said, 18 times I've tried all sorts of things and I've sat in conversations with Norwegians and it's just blah. <laughs> so um, you also mentioned, and I know that you also have made, I think you made a, a book about Narnia and the film locations of Narnia as well. Yeah, I um, came up with the idea of always being a lover of film and how it's made. And I am a um, repressed film director. When I left school, I went and got a job in a travel agency to earn enough money to go to university to um, study to work in film. But I love travel so much when I started there that I never went back. But I've always loved film. So I came up with the idea of creating a book for teenagers, really, who, like me, maybe wanted to get into film, um, on how you make a film. What uh, what are all these people doing on set uh, with these funny names like gaffers and, and grip and things like that? So um, I ended up working with Disney uh, on The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe with the New Zealand director, Andrew Adamson, uh, who I was so happy to work with because... He also directed one of my other favourite films, which is Shrek. So I was uh, embedded into the production with, um, again, made great friends with the unit publicist, Ernie Malik, and um, the stills photographer, Phil Bray, was so gracious because he was this other photographer sneaking around on his patch, taking photos that uh, and trying not to be in his way. But they helped me so much, so... That book uh, was released and we sold 850,000 copies worldwide. It won some awards, uh, educational awards. So uh, I was I was wrapped because it was a labour of love and to be recognised like that was fantastic. Quite impressive how you managed to get into those people and uh, get the rights to things and actually managed to to sell yourself in. I'm really quite impressed about that. So is it good talent to have? Well, it's, I guess it's like anything. If you do one and you do it well, that bodes well for the next one. So the hardest thing is getting your foot in the door in the first instance. Of course, now that I'm a unit stills photographer working on movies, taking photos, uh, that time on set with Lord of the Rings and Narnia put me in good stead for working on a set because I understand when to speak, when not to speak, when to be right out of the way. And my first real big um, job, I ended up in Norway working um, on the Heavy Water War in uh, Rukan, when the miniseries uh, produced by NRK. I created a film tourism guide for that, but worked on set and supplied them some photos. And then I was um, employed as unit stills photographer on the Norwegian film Bikabana. Uh, which was filmed in 2015. 
So I spent two weeks in Budapest in Hungary doing the interior scenes, and then uh, seven weeks in the mountains of Norway, and loved it. But that introduced me to, as a Norwegian said to me one time, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothing. And that is so true. And now I have a whole wardrobe of winter clothing that lives in Norway. I never feel the cold. Norwegians always say that there's nothing like the bad weather, it's just bad clothing. And yeah. I think it's the biggest lie to tell themselves. I always freeze. I really? freeze. Yeah, I even freeze inside in winter, just the cold and the fog and it like it crawls in everywhere. I, I don't manage to I don't think I manage to clothe correctly, probably. I don't know, but I'm always cold. And when I'm not cold, I'm I'm sweaty. <laughs> so it's like I never managed to get the right. Like it's easy when it's super, super cold because then I rather yeah. don't go outside or very short times. And then you just dress as much as you own on clothing and then you won't freeze. But your nose will freeze, your fingers will freeze, your toes will freeze, but the rest stays warm. Yeah, it's and funny, I have yeah. like this, this, this warming pads. You crack and then you keep warm and oh, I even really? have battery... But yeah, 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 I have it all. My husband buys me warming, keep me warm things every winter. <laughs> so he keeps me from freezing. So I keep I keep myself electrically warm. <laughs> You're wimping out. It's funny because, um, as I was saying, up in Espadal uh, in February last year, I, or the year before, I was up on the top of a mountain flying a drone in minus 38. And um, that was cold, but it's clear it's and cold. Crisp. Um, but I'm also involved, and this is a funny story, um, with David John Smith, actually, and his wife, Ella. I work at Mesna and uh, just had a lily hammer. Got to know the people that had the Icelandic uh, horses there. And they're great friends, too. And I, um, they have a play called Bikabina Spela every February. They came up, or we came up with the idea of an outdoor play um, about the Bikabinas. It's not on in February 2021 because of COVID. But um, last winter we were there and it's cold. It's outside. I take all the photos. And uh, David John Smith and his wife, Fowler, came up to attend the concert, uh, the performance, and I put on all the clothing that I normally do. And they sort of looked at me as if, wow, that's a lot of clothes. And Dan, we went, we sat outside and I was fine. The clothing they put on wasn't enough and they were freezing. And the funny thing is, Hella's uncle is Thor, was uh, Thor Heyerdahl, who's such a famous Norwegian that's been to all these remote places. And here was Hella, a Norwegian freezing, and here was Ian, a Kiwi that lives in Australia in 40 degrees, not <laughs> freezing. And they will never forget that. But <laughs> <laughs> And for, for the listeners who, who are not Norwegians or don't know the area very well, Lillehammer, what Ian talked about, first of all, it's a very cold area for being pretty far in the south. It's just like it's very far in the inland of Norway, so it's not touched by the, by the Gulf Stream. And Lillehammer is, is pretty famous for a Norwegian town. It's, uh, it, has, it hosted the Olympic Games quite a long time ago, and you will still find an Olympic village there if you want to visit it. And there's also a series produced, which is called Lillehammer, that was actually uh, shot there. Um, a lot of the locations are actually in Lillehammer. I think probably even all of them. That's lovely there. and it, it, It's funny when you talk about seasons, because uh, here in Australia, in Perth, we have a very hot summer. Um, and then winter is just 
how can I say drab? It rains a lot. Um, it's about 15 degrees. It get, can, we get maybe one frost a year, but it's not real seasons, uh, not like New Zealand and not like Norway. And I actually miss the seasons that in winter, looking forward to spring and seeing that growth. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, I don't think we have so many seasons in Norway, really. I, I, I do miss the seasons myself uh, from Austria. Like in Austria, we have actually four seasons. Yeah. Uh, and none of them takes nine months. <laughs> so in, in Norway, I feel like there's one big season that is winter. And winter has in itself a few seasons. Like you have the brown winter in the beginning of the, like from September to January, more or less, where it's just brown and foggy and pretty horrible to be outside when you ask me. And then you have white winter, which is super cold, icy, huge, nice sunsets, uh, which take like hours. It's really amazing. And this is all colors in the world you can imagine while the sunsets are going on. And then you have a brown winter again, which lasts until middle of May. So that's like my... And then you have summer right away. It gets super warm here in summer. And and that's like my impression of Norwegian seasons. So it's really funny that you think there are... Uh, you have a different uh, different opinion on that because for, for me it really isn't like that. Yeah, I guess I I've been to Norway in June, July a few times, and to me it feels like summer, albeit brief. Summer and winter is um, I always laugh because I look at the temperature in Norway and it's eighteen degrees, and die and my wife and I always say, "Oh, well, the Norwegians will be out in their bikinis now." But to be fair, you have, you've been here in summer. Like Norwegian summers, first of all, it can get up to 30 degrees and it also does every summer. But Norwegian summers are really differently warm. Like when it has 24 degrees Celsius here in Norway, it's really warm. It is. It's super nice. You can definitely be in your bikinis on the beach and you will not be cold at all. It's, it's very, very warm. While 30 degrees in like Spain feel completely different. But I have to say summers are short. It's like six to eight weeks here. But they're worth it. It's amazing. It doesn't get dark or very little. And uh, the vegetation is just exploding on you. And it's very nice summers. Like, I can bitch a lot about cold, but the summers are amazing. So if you ever want to visit uh, Norway, come between middle of May and middle of July, I would even say. It's an amazing time of the year. It's it's so great here. You will you will not regret it, especially on the west coast. When you drive up on the west coast uh, uh, in summer, it feels like you're on Greek islands, just nicer. Really, it's it's everything yeah. is green, and you have the wide of the Atlantic Ocean, and it's just really great. It's just so vibrant, isn't it? It's it's very nice. Like um, I'm not sure if you ever have been in in the Sound of Music area of Austria. Uh, where you have like the lakes and the mountains and the lakes and the mountains and the lakes and the mountains and everything yeah. is like blue and blue and blue um, with a nice green landscape around it. And it, I have to say summer in Norway when it's really, really warm in, in like June, July, it feels like that just bigger. It feels like this nice beauty of blue and green and mountains and ocean, but everything is bigger. Because in Austria you have lakes, while in Norway you have the ocean or the fjords, which are just yeah. so much wider. <laughs> yeah, I've only been I've been to Innsbruck in Austria, and that was in winter, um, and loved it. It's uh, a beautiful part of the world as well. Oh yeah, it's 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 very nice. But Innsbruck is is very different from from the rest of Austria. Like you have. Okay. You have the, the that is like heavy Alps. Like Innsbruck is really in the mountains. There's no nothing else anymore you just see the alps 
which yeah. is impressive. <laughs> yeah, um, you should come out here then, and um, we go out into the outback, as they call it here, out into the desert. And um, last July we had a bit of a holiday up north, and uh, we drove. It's hard. People maybe don't conceive how big Australia is. Um, it's as big as the USA. Uh, so where I am here in Perth, if I wanted to go to Sydney, is like flying from LA to New York. Uh, but in Western Australia, the biggest uh, state, I can drive 2,700 kilometres and still be in the same state, uh, still in Western Australia. Uh, it's like crossing Europe. Yeah, it is. And mm. we went up into the outback, well, across into the outback, and we drove for six hours, and the, it just didn't change. It's just outback. The occasional vehicle, nothing. It's a big country. Yeah. Yeah, well, I will pick you up on this offer. I will definitely visit Australia one day. It's been on my traveling list since I'm 16. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> and, uh, Having four kids and and having to work to feed them kind of helped me back from traveling. But I will uh, I will pick up on it when they're getting older. One day, <laughs> one day I might even have to bring one of them. It's um, I definitely want to want to visit you, and I, I definitely want to see New Zealand too. And I want to be in the film locations myself. <laughs> I've dreamed of that for a long time. You have to visit New Zealand. <laughs> I definitely will. Yeah, really looking forward to that one. Another thing I really wanted to to ask you about that I also mentioned in the intro is, is the wildfires. Uh, we have 2020 now, and last year we all have been shocked and looked uh, scared to what happened in, in Australia. How, how did you, did you fear uh, the wildfires? Were they close to you? No, we actually, the, the worst of the wildfires uh, were all on the East Coast, uh, as opposed to here in Perth. So... Again, it's like being in Los Angeles and having fires in New York. Um, a long way away, um, it didn't affect us at all. Uh, we get wildfires here, though, uh, every summer as well. And um, it's Australia is a burning country, very dry. It's very hot uh, in summer, but it's scary. Fire is something very scary, and um, invariably in our summers here, Every other day, maybe, you will see smoke on the horizon somewhere. Uh, but we've got an amazing fire service with aircraft, water bombers. When it gets out of control like it did on the East Coast, that's that's serious. But uh, touching wood, as we speak, we I haven't experienced anything like that uh, here on the, um, uh, on the West Coast. Oh, it's good you were safe, yeah. I did, I did read that... The smoke from the from the wildfires was even visible from New Zealand. I could actually look over to Australia, which is quite far away. Like if you look at the map, you see that New Zealand is quite far away from Australia. Um, but you could actually see the smoke there, which yeah. is scary when you think of it. Mm. Yeah, well, the winds are predominantly westerly. So um, anything blowing in a westerly direction uh, across like Sydney and those areas... Uh, is going to blow and does blow straight across to New Zealand, 1,800 uh, kilometres away. It's funny, I'm further away to uh, Sydney from here than Sydney is to New Zealand. It's quite odd. Um, so if you think about it, I, I'm actually on 
the same time zone as Hong Kong. Uh, so I'm that far across. And we, of course, have the Indian Ocean here. So if I was to go any further eastward from the sea here, my next stop would be Africa. So it's a long way across <laughs> that stretch. But it's funny you were saying before about convicts in Australia. I love doing our family tree, and I've gone back a long way, back to the 1500s, had my DNA done. But I'm proud to say, and, and people look for it now, uh, that I have four Australian convicts as great-great-great-great-grandparents. So they were shipped out from England in uh, the late 1700s uh, to Australia. Part of the family shifted to New Zealand in the early 1900s, which is how come I was born there. But um, So I have Australian convict or English convict blood uh, in me as well. So I'm pretty proud of that. That's something to be proud of. <laughs> exactly. It's actually interesting. A lot of people do those DNA tests. I never thought of doing one. Yeah, I've done one. I did mine. And it's really funny. I, the first time I, uh, I did it, they keep updating the, the um, results. So the first time I did it, I got it back and I was uh, something like 48% English, 48% Scottish, and I was 4% Norwegian. And I was so happy with that. <laughs> and then just um, this year, they've updated the results and my Norwegian's been taken off me. I'm now uh, 54% Scottish and the rest English. So, <laughs> How did that change? They actually update their database? Yeah. Uh, and... yeah, they follow the, is it genomes or something like that? But as more and more people register, they, they follow the DNA strands. So they can actually update the results and give you a clearer and better picture. My ancestors came from uh, Scotland. There's a Brodie Castle. And um, on the other, or the other part of them came from Somerset. And I was so proud. One of the enhanced e-books I did, uh, Diane and I lived in Somerset in England for six months, uh, working for Visit Somerset and created an enhanced e-book for them. And... Um, It was amazing to be in that part of England where my ancestors came from. And um, there's a little church in a, in a, a village called Lopen in Somerset. And my great, 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 great grandparents married there in about 1820. Um, so Diane and I visited and I walked Diane up the aisle um, just as they would have done all those years ago. It's, That's so cool. So cool to be able to do that. I think I would be scared to meet like lots of new people through a DNA test. I think like, I have such a big family already as it is. I think they would just show up even more people because like my parents have been, my mother's side, they have been eight kids and my father's yep. side, they have been seven kids. And they all had a lot of kids themselves. So even just the, the close by family, I have so many cousins. <laughs> Australians and New Zealanders, we um, it's difficult for us to live in other countries. Um, I can't live in England, for example. Um, I can go there and work for six Why months. Why not? Uh, we're not allowed to. You, you can't get a visa to live there. Well, things might change now with the Brexit. I hope so. Uh, my ideal, and I'd have to say this, my ideal would be um, a country cottage in England and a mountain cabin in Norway and just go between the two. I'd be very happy with that. It cuts down to traveling a lot. It does. And 
of course, that's the thing for me. It was 12 hours um, from New Zealand to get to Bangkok, where I normally go, and then another 12 hours to Oslo. Um, it's cut it down. It's only um, five and 12 now, but um, it would be so nice to be so much closer. And I love England. I could definitely live in England. Uh, the weather gets a bit uh, dreary. Uh, in fact, it gets a lot dreary, but um, you can put up with that. And you've got so many places you can escape. We uh, were fortunate we lived in Provence in the south of France uh, for three months uh, a few years ago. And um, you just escape to somewhere like that. It's beautiful. I didn't know that you lived there. That sounds really nice. Yeah, it was. We um, did our, I did the job, as I said, in, in Somerset for six months. And then we had to leave England. So we went and lived and found a, a little village in Provence, uh, found an apartment and lived there for three months. And it was over the winter. It was November, December, January. Uh, Pierre, the, the guy that owns the coffee shop where we used to drink coffee every day, just sent me a Christmas email message this morning. So five years later, we're still friends and uh, I'd be back there tomorrow. I, I loved living in France. I've just been in France a few times and mostly like a pass through on the north side, just like from cross the border quickly from Germany, sure. basically. So I, I never really traveled the country yet. There's also my traveling list. I have a long traveling list. <laughs> yeah, my my ultimate aim is New Mexico. I've traveled to the States a lot and I love the desert and been to Arizona when I was director of the Aviation Museum, been to a few conferences and went to aviation places in Tucson and Arizona. I'm a great fan of Breaking Bad and there's so many films and television being made in New Mexico. It's just, I've got to go there and do a film tourism book um, for, for New Mexico. But let's hope somebody from New Mexico film is listening to this podcast. Hey, it's Ian here. Let me come and visit New Mexico. I'll do stuff for you. <laughs> <laughs> let's hope it spreads there. <laughs> exactly. As we met through Hidden, I think we should probably just take a few minutes to talk about that because I'm pretty sure outside of Norway, people don't really know what Hidden is. As you're one of the founders, want to introduce Hidden a little bit? Sure. It's, uh, again, this all came back from uh, my visit to speak at the Film Tourism Conference in Lillehammer. Uh, while we were there, this young guy got up and he had this little mythological creature um, called a rumpus in his um, arms. And I went, wow, that's cool. What is it? And he said his name was Paul and he wanted to make this uh, animated film about um, the Halder folk of Norway and mythology. And of course, being a Tolkien fan, uh, that immediately pricked my ears. I went, oh, this sounds interesting. I said, well, I'd love to be involved. And um, we parted ways. And about a year later, I got an email message and we kept, had kept in touch, and he said, we want to fly you to Hemsedal and uh, talk about film tourism. So off I went, and, and we did that, and we talked to the local council and talked to everybody, and I met this other guy called Irvin, and an amazing artist, graphic artist and designer. We talked about the movie, and then the idea of a film sort of dwindled and more the idea of an application that you could take with you and, and explore places in Norway, explore mythology, but have it come to life with augmented reality, video, film, 
uh, audio and, and work with a GPS. Um, so the three of us sat down and, and plotted this thing out and um, Hidden was born. So it's been an amazing journey. And I'll let you maybe, um, from your uh, perspective, explain sort of where it's gone from there. Well, I came to Hidden a few years after that. And um, I worked with uh, both Eivind and uh, a little bit with Paul. The second I came in, Paul actually was elected mayor of Hemsedal. So he had to stop working on the project. Uh, but I, I still worked with him just a little bit. And when when I got uh, got into hidden uh, hidden project, it already was launched. So it already was a working app, a mixed reality app where you could. It was like GPS based. So and it still is still out there and still online and running and it's it's uh, actually still in development. It's a great app. So you have a GPS based map and if you are somewhere in the outlands of let's say Hamsedal or uh, anywhere else, you can just check like is there anything in the area around me that is of any interest to me. And you will get up the locations on your map and you can just walk there. And very often when you're inside the geofence, you will get more information. You will get pictures, probably some videos. Um, and on some special locations, we had uh, 3D or have 3D models in there. So you can actually see a shirtworm uh, jumping in and out of the water. Or you can see uh, a troll walking around next to you and waving to you. And it's really, really cool it's a really cool app uh, i can really recommend testing it when you when you have a chance i probably also post a link on on the blog learnfromastranger.com so you can easily find hidden yeah no it's fun and, and it is growing all the time and um i'm really proud as, of that as well the fact that it, it is growing yeah it really is cool i think also mixed reality really brings in this next step of developing uh tourism um to, to suddenly not have to build stuff everywhere and to have put signs on that get old and not very nice to look at anymore just outside somewhere in the nature. Now you can just leave nature how it is. And if I wonder about something, I can just pick up my phone and look at it right there, right where I stand. I don't have to carry things around. I don't have to build these huge monuments in the middle of nowhere and ruin, uh, ruin nature anymore. I just can't experience it just as it is, which is amazing. I really like the the perspective of that. They can change tourism in a nice in a nice way. Mm. And it allows you to create, like um, going back to film tourism, um, sets that have disappeared. You can uh, create them um, and see them on your phone. And uh, the film, funnily enough, that got me interested in, in film tourism. It's, it's a little bit oddball now. I guess it's a, a film by the Italian director um, Antonioni called Zabriskie Point, and it was um, about hippies, for want of a better word, in um, Los Angeles area in the 19, late 60s. And uh, they end up at uh, a place called Zabriskie Point out in the desert. And then further on... Um, it is spoilers if you don't want to know about the end of the uh, film, but uh, the end sequence is this huge big mansion uh, exploding in the desert over and over and over again uh, to the music of Pink Floyd. And it's uh, different, it's bizarre, it's fantastic. And with Hidden, I want to recreate that scene and listen to Pink Floyd and see it in an augmented reality. I just, I've got to do that one day. 
Yeah, that you can do that with hidden. That's like that's a cool thing. Like with augmented reality, you can actually stand somewhere and see the explosion over and over again mm. in real life. I've been uh, to um, a Star Wars location uh, just before the lockdown in February. Oh, at Finsa. In Finsa, right? I will have yeah. a guest from that uh, in one of the next episodes, and we we were at a film location where they made the Star Wars movie, right? Like it's the ice planet Hoth that it was recreated there. We talked over and over again. How cool would it be to just stand there and put your phone up and you see the people walking there, you see the robots walking there, you see uh, the the characters walking there and you don't have to, again, you don't have to touch the environment. You can let nature be nature and still see this impressive 30 meter high things flying, running around, walking around, which is really impressive. And the thing is, this is possible. This is not hard to do. It's, it's quite cost intense still because you need to make the 3D models and you need to actually implement them in. But it is possible and we can do that now. And it's definitely much cheaper than to build it and make it a, a site you can visit, right? So it's really, really a lot of possibilities with uh, with this kind of technology. I'm, I really look forward to see more and more and more of it in our in our normal days. Yeah, I agree. Like, you can do a lot with that with virtual reality. Like, see that when... I'm not a big Star Wars geek, you know? Like, I I, I watched the movies and I slept through parts of them. But first, when I actually was in virtual reality and played Waiter Immortal, which which is a a 3D game where you are part of the crew suddenly and you... Okay. Like, in in one of the first scenes, Darth Vader actually walks down uh, the hallway and walks towards you and... I actually got so scared when he was standing in front of me because he's really, really big. I had to, it was one of the first days I had a virtual reality headset, so I wasn't really used in it yet. And I actually had to sit down. <laughs> that was my reaction. It was like, that's too scary. I just sit down, <laughs> which didn't really help because then he was much taller suddenly. And it actually took me a little bit of courage to stand up again and just stand eye in eye with Darth Vader yeah. in like real, you know, he's like, it's so real. It's so big and tall and clear. But it really is cool. It's it's very impressive. So I, re- I already really like virtual reality, but to put those things and those images in the real world with augmented reality or mixed reality is just so much cooler because you can suddenly be unseen in untouched nature and see something explode, as you said, or you can see people walking around, interacting with you. And it's really just, I look so much forward to, to the world we create to that. And it's amazing how it's changed. Like, um, as, a, as a younger person, I grew up playing computer games like Duke Nukem. Um, and that was, I thought, was out of this world playing Duke Nukem. And then um, Half-Life came along and I played that for so long and I couldn't believe how good it was. And now I look at my um, grandson's PlayStation and, and what he's playing and it's real. It's, it's you're there. So take that and put it in the real world, then you've got something special. Mm. And those things are already possible. We're not talking future here. We're talking this is already happening right Mm. now all around us. Studios all over the world make it happen. It's fantastic. And especially Half-Life, like the last Half-Life, Alex came out on virtual reality only. So you can actually not play it on a normal computer. You have to have a virtual reality headset in order to experience it. And it is stunning i have really not seen much like it it's so amazing it looks so real the graphics are fantastic 
uh, you really you stand in it. I'm not a Half-Life fan. I didn't play any of them before. I, I saw them, obviously, but I never really played them. It's not the kind of game I enjoy. But I bought Half-Life for a fortune yeah. <laughs> when it came out just to be able to see it, and I was not disappointed. And I think the first game that really came out like that was Unreal. Uh, I loved playing Unreal. And they um, said later on that that was the basis, whether it's true or not, uh, for James Cameron's uh, Avatar. Uh, Unreal to me was the first game that really set a scene and music together, unbelievably. Unreal the game, and it was the first use of the Unreal Engine, which the Unreal Engine, I think, took its name from Unreal the game, uh, the first one. So... Yeah, the thing is, like, I'm not a fan of first first person shooter video games. Okay. So I that's why I don't know many of them either. Like, of course, as I worked in the game industry, a lot of them touched me somehow, or because yeah. of my brothers and my husband playing them and stuff. But I just, for me, they all kind of look the same, and for me, it feels the gameplay feels like I'm just running around all day. Yeah. And yeah. I just really don't enjoy that at all. <laughs> so. For me, it's like I don't like running around. It's it's boring, and that's why I never played those games. So that's why I'm I'm I just saw them passing by. Yeah, well, my others were Age of Empires, I loved, and Microsoft Flight Simulator. And it's funny because of uh, myself working at the uh, being the director of the Fighter Pilots Museum in Monaco uh, when uh, Microsoft Combat Flight Simulator European version came out. Uh, myself and a great friend of mine, a World War II fighter ace, uh, were flowing up to Microsoft and we uh, acted as advisors for that game for um, uh, six weeks. So I can say I, I sort of can put on a CV that I've worked in Microsoft gaming for at least six weeks anyway. Uh, but now <laughs> I see the new version of Microsoft Flight Simulator uh, and that's uh, incredible. It's uh, uh, when it comes out on Xbox, I'm going to go and buy myself an Xbox just to play that. Yeah, I saw some videos. I see some uh, people live streaming themselves flying, and it just yeah. looks amazing. Yeah. Um, it just it just is great. And I think with actually like a with a VR set and some equipment, you can actually simulate have your own actual flight simulator in your home own office which is really impressive because it's not that cost expensive anymore. And then you suddenly fly in 360. To angle right like you can actually look yeah. around you and you sit in a plane and you stir your wheel and it's it's really cool if dying would let me i'd be doing that here but we don't have the room <laughs> well as you don't need that much room anymore you just need a, a headset you have your chair and you just need uh need um, some kind of steering wheel which are pretty affordable nowadays yeah control column Control column, Karen. It's not a steering wheel. It's a control column. <laughs> See, I'm not a, I'm not a geek on this uh, thing either. So. <laughs> it shows. <laughs> probably, I probably have to to try that. Ian, I think we're uh, we're at the, the end of uh, today's episode. I I have to say, I could talk with you probably like five hours uh, and never get bored or. Uh, run out of topics to talk about but sadly a, a podcast has to end <laughs> oh it's just getting started and having fun it's so fascinating talking to you because you have such a broad variety of things we can talk about it's really great so thank you very much for coming and being my guest oh, thank you for inviting me it's um 
been great fun and I um, I really appreciate you asking me. Thank you. Of course, I would always have you again. And for all our listeners, I'm going to put on learnfromastranger.com some pictures of Ian and actually a recipe we didn't have time to talk about right now. He promised me to make a barbecue, a barbecue recipe. Did you actually, did you actually do that? Uh, I made it, but I forgot to video it. So I'll uh, be doing it again. So that's no problem. Yeah, so perfect. So you get a surprise recipe on the blog, uh, on the pantry section of the blog. Uh, so stay tuned for that. I'm also going to put up Ian Brody's homepages so you can find them. And if anybody's listening out there from New Mexico Film Studios, contact Ian. It's, uh, all the contact information is out there. Don't forget about contacting him. He needs to travel there. It's on his, uh, on his list. And in the end, remember that every good friend was once a stranger. Have a nice day.